grace and mercy alone. And Father, I pray that as we look to that truth this morning in your word, that you will encourage our hearts. Father, for those of us that are mourning the loss of our friend and brother and son, Father, for those of us that are struggling with issues in our life, Father, I pray that the great doctrine of justification would be an encouragement to our souls today. For ultimately, God, that doctrine is about how sinners can be made right with you. And Father, though the worlds fall apart, Father, though everything in our life crumble, there is still that rock that remains sure that for all who trust in Christ, Father, you will never leave them or forsake them. So Father, I pray that you would be with us today, that you would give us your spirit to hear and to understand and be drawn to you through your word. Father, bring conviction of sin and bring encouragement and comfort to our hearts. And we ask all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one in the pew rack in front of you, the red book. Romans chapter 4. This morning we uh, are gathered here together, particularly those of us that are members at this church. We, are, we sit here as Baptists. We sit here as Southern Baptists. And more specifically or more broadly, I guess we should say, we stand here as Protestants. And largely what, why, why it is that we are here as Protestants, that is not Catholics, goes back a couple hundred years and it ultimately rests on one thing and that is the biblical doctrine of justification. We've talked before about Martin Luther and his struggle to be made known, to be made right with God and to know that he can have assurance of the forgiveness of his sins and his right standing before God. And ultimately that was driven because he realized and he rightly understood that a holy God demands holiness from anyone who would go to him. That without holiness we still stand condemned for our sins. And so, in the understanding that he was taught, Luther strove for holiness. But he reached his wit's end. He says, no matter how hard I try, no matter how, how, how insanely passionate I am about holiness, I still sin. I am still a sinner, and so I still feel condemned by God. God, what, what do I do? What more can I possibly do to be made right with you? And amazingly enough, it was in reading God's Word... It was in reading God's Word that he discovered the doctrine of justification by faith. And there he understood that it was not anything that he did that made him right with God. It was something God himself had already done in Christ that allowed him to be made right with God. In other words, understanding the, the doctrine of justification is essential for understanding the gospel. So this morning, if I were to say to you, define the doctrine of justification, you may say, uh, I, I'm not exactly sure, and you, and you may struggle. But as we look through the text this morning, and you hear what the doctrine of justification is, if you have not believed that, then you have not believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
You have not believed in Christ as your Savior. You have not received the life-giving message by faith. And therefore, you still stand condemned in your sins. Because ultimately, justification is the opposite of condemnation. And you'll remember the, our first message in this series was looking at our just condemnation by God because of our sinfulness. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the result is we stand under His judgment for our sinfulness. It is a just sentence that He passes upon us because we have in fact sinned. And so therefore we deserve death because we have offended a holy God. But God says in His Word that we can escape the wrath to come. The sentence of condemnation that we have received because of our sins can be commuted. And God can declare us righteous in Christ. We can be justified, declared not guilty before Him. And if that is the case, then we will be saved from our sins. See, justification is a legal term. Think of all the different things we've looked at. We looked at propitiation, which was the... The language of the temple, of sacrifice, of Christ dying as an atoning sacrifice, fulfilling God's wrath for our life. And then we looked at redemption, the, the, the imagery of the slave market, Him buying us back out of slavery from sin. And now we come to the realm of the law. If you have been justified by God, it means He has legally declared that you are not guilty. We stand before God legally innocent of the sins we have committed. More than that, God has declared you, not just not guilty, but He has declared you righteous in Christ. And so the question is, how does all this come to us? How is it that we can move from standing under condemnation to experiencing justification? How is it that sinners can be declared righteous in Christ? And that's what we want to look at this morning as we go to... The book of Romans chapter 4. The book of Romans is Paul's letter to the Christians who are at Rome. And it's been called the greatest letter ever written. It's also been said that if you understand Romans, that you will be able to understand the rest of the scriptures. Because Paul provides the, the large framework by which everything God has done hangs together. And at the very center of Paul's letter, the very center of what God has done is this doctrine of justification. So let's look and see the first eight verses of Romans chapter 4 and see what the apostle says to us about justification by faith. It begins with a question. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, the one to, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. May God bless the reading of His Word. This morning, we need to understand three truths about justification. First, we need to understand that justification comes by faith, not works. Justification comes by faith, not works. In Acts 4, Peter is speaking of Jesus and he says this, There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
The New Testament clearly teaches that if we are to be made right with God, we must place our faith in Jesus Christ and no one else. And that's explicit, conscious faith in Christ. In other words, we don't, although some people say this, you, may, you will not find some good Buddhist over here and God said, because they were sincere, I will, I, will, I will act like in worshiping the Buddha and following him, they were worshiping me and following me. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Jesus says there is, Paul, Peter says there is no other name except the name of Jesus Christ by which men may be saved. So it doesn't matter how sincere or how devoted someone is in their religion or belief, unless they turn from sins to trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, they cannot be made right with God. But if you've been here in this church, or if you've been a Christian for a long time, have you ever wondered, what about before Christ? You know, when I was, when I was younger and, um, you know, growing as, as a Christian, I assumed that part of the glory of the New Testament was salvation was now by grace and before it had been by works. I assume the reason why the law was such a big deal was because if Israel, who was given the law, would simply do the law, faithfully, obedient, joyfully, then God would save them. He would forgive their sins. They would earn their salvation. And so the great thing now was now that Christ was coming, we didn't have to earn our salvation. But guess what? That's wrong. That is dead wrong. God had, and understand that if you don't get anything else out of this morning's message, this is it. God never saves anyone by what they do. God never saves anyone by the works that they do. It's just, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work. But we still try, don't we? We still try. We, we, we think somehow it's what, it's what we do is what makes us right with God. For example, Mormons believe it's a mixture of God's grace and works that save a person. Mormonism, of course, is a, is a cult of Christianity. It's not true Christianity. And one of the professors at Brigham Young University, the Mormon College, Robert Millay, says this, the grace of Christ is not sufficient for salvation. I would not want to be responsible for writing that sentence. The grace of Christ is not sufficient for salvation. The works of man, the ordinances of salvation, the deeds of service, and the acts of charity and mercy are necessary for salvation. It's not just Mormons either. It's also with those in Islam. In Surah 5.9 of the Quran, we read this. To those who believe and do deeds of righteousness. To those who believe and do deeds of righteousness hath Allah promised forgiveness and a great reward. Understand this. I had I was witnessing to our, our neighbors one time who are not Christians. They grew up in Nepal and their statement was, very common statement, all religions are basically the same, aren't they? And it was, I mean... I didn't know I didn't agree with that, but it was a great opportunity for me to say, no, no. All religions are the same except Christianity in this. In every other religion, whether it's mixed with belief or whether it's straight works, it's what you do that makes you right with God. It's what you do that gets you into paradise. It's what you do that causes your consciousness to be, to be merged with nirvana or whatever it is. However you're defining salvation. It comes by what you do. But Christianity alone says, no. No. Both from Adam until the very last saint that will, be, well, will trust in Christ before he returns and calls all of us home, no one has ever been saved by what they do. And you know, Paul's just been arguing this in Romans chapter 3 
and he knows the objection that's going to come in the mind of the Jewish Christian in Rome. They're going to say, no, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What about, what about Abraham? What about, what about Father Abraham? Do you guys know who Abraham, do you remember who Abraham is? I guarantee you that the Jewish people know who Abraham is. He is the one from which all Jews descend from. Abraham was a descendant of Noah, and he found himself living among a pagan people, worshiping pagan gods. He was not a follower of the one true and living God. And yet God called out to him in the midst of that pagan idolatry and said, I want to do something through you, Abraham. I want to bless you, and I want to give you great descendants. And through those descendants, I want to bless the entire world. Will you trust me? Will you believe that I will keep that promise, and will you follow me? And Abraham said, yes. And so he packed up, and he left his home, and he began to wander as God would take him where he wanted him to go. And in Genesis chapter 15, God makes a formal covenant with Abraham. And if you remember, he is told to gather all these animals and to cut them in two and to spread them apart. And in that culture, when you made a promise with someone, it wasn't just a handshake. It was something much more gruesome than that. And it was the slaughter of these animals. And you would walk hand in hand with the person to whom you're making the promise. Aren't you glad we don't do this at weddings today? When you're promising to love one another, it's not good. But what you would do, you would walk through. And, and, and it was gory because you would see all of the blood and the, and the offal and everything poured out from these slaughtered animals. And you would know if you broke the covenant, that's what would happen to you. <laughs> and so God says, we're going to make a covenant, Abraham. We're going to literally cut a covenant. And yet, after the animals are spread apart, God puts Abraham to sleep. And he gives Abraham a vision of himself coming down in his glory as a smoking fire pot and by himself moving between the slaughtered animals. What does that mean? He was saying to Abraham, this covenant will be fulfilled not because of anything you do, Abraham. It is my sovereign grace that will sustain this covenant. I alone will make sure that it comes to pass. And that's good, isn't it? Because we know what Abraham did, didn't he? had some crisis of faith, you know, we could call it. God said, believe me that I am going to bless you. And he said, great, I believe you. But then guess what? They're going into a town. And he says, you know what, Sarah, my wife, who's like 75 years old, he said, you are most beautiful among women. Now, you know, no offense to our 75-year-old ladies, but I'd like to see Sarah in, in heaven because I just can't, I can't imagine that, all right? Um, you know, but th- there it is. Nevertheless, he says, they're going to see your beauty and they're going to kill me and take you for their self. Therefore, you just say, you lie. You say you're my sister. And they, they won't kill me. We'll, we'll be safe. Well, guess what? If it's Abraham's sister, then I can marry her as one of my wives. And suddenly the promise is threatened. Because Abraham and Sarah have no kids and God has said, I'm going to supernaturally give you a kid. And now she's going to be off to marry to somebody else. Abraham has royally messed up. The covenant. But what does God do? He swoops in and he rescues Sarah. He rescues the covenant. And he says, don't do that. What are you doing? Don't you trust me? Don't you trust me? And Abraham says, I'm sorry. I I should have trusted you. But then guess what? He does the exact same thing again. And then they get impatient. And Sarah says, look, you know, it's it's been like 20 years. You just sleep with my servant. And then that'll be the kid we have. That will be the child of promise. And God says, no. No, you wait for me. Trust me to do this thing in you, Abraham. 
And then finally, finally, God brings about the covenant promise. And it is, it is a time of rejoicing at what God has done. Here is a woman who is 100 years old and gives birth to her first kid. Can you imagine? And because she, it is such an unthinkable thing, and she laughs when God gives a promise. God says, name the kid laughter. So every time you call him, you will know. Both I am the giver of joy and I am one not to be laughed at when I, keep, when I give my promise. The kid grows up, 16, 17, 18 years old. Abraham knows this is the child of promise. Through him, all of his descendants will now come. And yet God says, Abraham, take that kid up to the mountain and slaughter him as a sacrifice to me. Wait a minute, God, didn't you just, didn't you just, <laughs> didn't we go through decades of waiting for this kid? Isn't this the one you've said, this is the child of promise, and now you want to kill him? But at this point, Abraham had learned faith. He had learned to trust God even when it seemed like everything else didn't make any sense. And the author of Hebrews, and the, under the inspiration of the Bible, says, though he had not seen or heard of anything like it before, Abraham had such faith in God that he believed if he killed the son of promise, Isaac, God could raise him back to life. And so God said, not just for me, but now for yourself. Your faith has been tested. Continue to live by faith in me, Abraham. Now, Abraham failed a lot. But when the rabbis began writing the commentary on the Old Testament, they would make comments like this. This is from the book of Jubilees. Abraham was perfect in all his dealings with the Lord and gained favor by his righteousness throughout his life. Dude, I don't want to argue with you, rabbi, but didn't you read your own scriptures? Abraham dropped the ball. He fumbled several times. He was not righteous in all his dealings with the Lord. And it was certainly not his righteousness that earned him favor with God. And that is what Paul is writing. He knows the objection of their minds and says, wait a minute, Abraham earned, earned righteousness by his faithfulness, so why can't we? And Paul says, no, no, no. You understand that what we're telling you now, that justification being made right with God comes by faith and not works. This is not something new. This is the way it's always been. And so he says, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. But what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was not made righteous by what he did. Instead, God counted him as righteous, declared him to be righteous. His, the, the righteousness that Abraham had before God came to Abraham as a gift when he believed God. Abraham trusted the promise of God. He had faith. And it was through his faith that God declared him righteous before him. And so Paul is writing and he's saying, look, it's always been this way. Our justification, our right standing before God has nothing to do with what we do. It has to do with God, what God does to us and for us by His grace. And so just as with Abraham, so also with us today in Christ. We place our faith in the promise of God to save us and we don't try and earn our justification with Him. Secondly, Paul says that justification produces humility, not boasting. Justification produces humility, not boasting. Again, Paul says this, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Paul is establishing a, a hypothetical situation. So, okay, let's just, 
Let's take for granted for a second that Abraham, it was possible for him to earn righteousness by his works. Let's just, let's think about this for a minute, my friends. Would he not then be able to brag about something before his friends? I was good enough that God declared me righteous. I earned the favor that I have with God. And what about before God? When God says, you are, I declare you righteous, Abraham. And Abraham says, I know. I earned it. I did all the work. Right? If he was saved by works, then he would be able to boast. Why? Well, look what Paul says in verse 4. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Now, who in here works a job where you get a paycheck? If, if you work a job and don't get a paycheck, I suggest you find another job. Okay? But I assume you're going to get a paycheck, right? And at the end of the day, you've worked. You've worked you know, your, your tail off, and you punch out, and waiting there is the, is the secretary of the boss, and she hands you the check. Of course, these days it's all direct deposit, but let's just, for the sake of argument, she hands you the check, right? What do you say? Oh, thank you so much for this gift. You're so gracious. You're so merciful. No, you don't say that, do you? You say, I earned that check. Give it to me. And I worked so hard, I deserve more. Where's my raise? I mean, I, I earned that money. I got something to boast about. No, nobody else works as hard as I do, and the paycheck shows it. And Paul's saying that's exactly the way it would be if, if we could earn salvation by works. It would not be something that we would give glory to God for. It would be something we would boast in because we would have earned it. And Paul says, here's the problem. Abraham can't boast before God for two reasons. First, because the scriptures say he did not earn salvation by works. He quotes from Genesis. He quotes from Genesis where the author says it was Abraham believing God. It was Abraham believing God. It was him putting his faith in God. And it was through that that then it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham found grace in the eyes of God. God called him to believe and to trust him with his life. And when he did that, it was through his faith that then God counted to him a righteousness that was not his own. But secondly, Abraham couldn't have been saved by his works because no one, not even Abraham, could ever do anything good enough or be good enough to earn salvation from God. You're never going to stand before God and he's going to say, oh, that was good enough. Now, now you've earned salvation. Therefore, no one, not Abraham, not us, no one can boast about the salvation, the justification that we have received by God. We can only stand in humility and awe at what God has done for us by his grace. You know, when I was in high school, I was in Air Force Junior ROTC, Reserve Officers Training Corps. And in college, they have the, the non-junior, just the, the regular Reserve Officers Training Corps. And what that is, if you are going through college and yet you want to go in the military, if you do ROTC, then you don't go in as an enlisted man, you go in as an officer. More responsibility and more pay. Okay. Now, they had a, a junior form of that in high school. And the benefit to going through that in high school was twofold. If you went directly into the military out of high school, that bumped you up to two pay grades uh, on your, as an enlisted man. If you went from high school to college ROTC, you immediately went in, not at the bottom, but again, two, two ranks up. And so it gave you a leg up. And as a, as a junior high and young high schooler, it was my firm conviction that God wanted me to fly jet planes. I wanted to be a fighter pilot. And frankly, that was from watching too much Top Gun, probably. Okay? But uh, I said, that's what I want to do. I want to hit mock speeds 
and, uh, and defend this country. And then when I was 15, God said, uh, no, you got it all wrong. You're not going to do that. You're not going to fly fighter planes. I may let you ride in one sometime, but you're not going to fly them. That's not going to be your job. You're going to go in the ministry. And I said, okay, fine, but can I at least still stay in ROTC? Right? It's fun. And uh, that's what happened. And so, to be honest, I did well all four years. I did well in that program in high school. My freshman year, I made cadet of the month and then cadet of the semester. I competed in several drill competitions. I had served the squadron in three major positions, the logistics officer, the operations officer, and the chaplain. I earned four official citations by community organizations like the Veterans of Foreign Wars and achieved the, science, the second highest rank possible cadet lieutenant colonel. Big shot, right? No. No. Why? Because God in His grace gave me the opportunity to get to know people, men from what we call the greatest generation. Those men that served our country in World War II. One man I know stormed the beaches of Normandy. Another served in helping repel the German occupation in France. My own grandfather served in the Pacific Theater. Now do you think for a minute that when I talk to those men, I stand there and talk about my junior, junior ROTC experiences in high school with any amount of boasting? Not on your life. Because compared to what they did, what I did was meaningless. It was meaningless. Those men fought and bled and saw friends die protecting our freedoms. And what did I do? Play soldier? I have nothing to boast about before those men. And likewise, God says to us, we have nothing to boast about before God. Compared to Him in the radiance of His eternal glory, compared to Him in the perfection of His righteousness, we have nothing to boast about. The prophet Isaiah says, We have all become like one who is unclean, that is, filled and consumed with leprosy. We have to be put outside the camp, not with everyone else. And all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Have we done good things? Sure. Who's given to charity? Who's helped elderly people across the street? Who's went and bought someone a meal? Who was homeless? They go on and on and on. Are those good things? Absolutely. Should we be doing them? Yes. But they're never worth salvation. Because even at our best, those works are done stained by sin. They're not righteous before God. They're good things to do. But compared to God, we can only produce filthy rags. So salvation cannot be based on our works. We are not and never will be good enough to do something that God will say, that's worth salvation. Because you are so good, because you did that, I will let you into heaven and forgive your sins. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. There's a great danger today, isn't there? Both by people outside the church looking to be saved and by those inside the church who have made the mistake in believing that while we're saved by grace, it's our works that keep us in God's grace. There's a great danger to want to boast in our own righteousness instead of bowing in humility before God. And I fear far too often we find ourselves like the Pharisee of Luke 18, whom Jesus said would go to the temple and pray, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. The reality is Jesus said we should look far more like the tax collector who standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but would beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, that man went down to his house justified rather than the other. 
For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. No matter how hard we serve, no matter how pious we appear or how far we try and separate ourselves from sin, we cannot earn justification by works, and so we have no reason to boast before God. Finally, we need to understand that Paul says to us, justification declares God's righteousness, not ours. Justification declares God's righteousness, not ours. For a while, it was popular to say justification meant it's just as if I never sinned. You'd ask somebody, what is justification? That was the answer you would get. But think about what that would mean and why it's insufficient as a definition. If it's just as if I never sinned, that means I'm kind of at a, at a moral neutral. I've never, I've never actually done anything good or bad. I'm kind of at square one. But justification is so much more than that. What does David say in Psalm 32? Paul quotes it here. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. The reality is we have sinned. And the glory of justification is that God pardons our sin. When we are justified before God, he makes a declaration that we are not guilty of the sin that we in fact have committed. Now how can he do this? Because we have sinned. How can he say not guilty? That's the second part of justification. God can forgive our sins and declare us righteous, not because we are righteous in and of ourselves, but because He credits His own righteousness to us. That is, He counts the righteousness of Christ to us. And so Paul says, doesn't he? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Justification is not about God making us righteous. God does that. But that comes later. And we'll talk about in a sermon called Sanctification, where God actually works to make us holy. But before he does that, he declares us holy. He declares us righteous in Christ. What did we just sing? Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. What are we saying? We're saying when we stand before God, we don't come saying, I have done all the right things and this is why I'm acceptable. No. That's what great theologians called an alien righteousness. Not weirdo guys flying in spaceships, but something outside of ourselves that is given to us. Now understand. Understand, we might trip over the language, but Paul is not saying that Abraham's faith was considered righteousness before God. Because we're back where we started. It's a work, isn't it? So, so it's not that Abraham believed, and that, that believing was a righteous act. No, faith, belief, is the means by which God's righteousness comes to us. Just like drinking a Coke through a straw. The straw is faith. It is the means, the conveyance by which God brings righteousness to our accounts just as Adam's guilt and his sin is imputed is credited to us so also Christ's righteousness when we believe is imputed is credited now to our lives so for the so for the, for the 33 years that Christ was alive actively joyfully obeying every command every law every intention of God's heart a man like us in every way but without sin, the Bible says. 
perfect righteousness before God. Not just not sinning, righteousness. Far superior to Adam. And God says, when you believe the promise that I will save you in him, then all of that righteousness is considered to be your righteousness. Think about it like this. You are about to stand before a mighty king of an ancient kingdom. And before this king, you are required to show all of the honor and the deference that is due him. And so you are walking to the city where his throne room is, preparing for your audience before the king. But on the way there, a fast and irresponsible horse rider flies alongside the road and splashes up the mud all over your outer garments. And you're standing there thinking, I can't go before the king like this. What am I going to do? And you think, it's not far. Perhaps I'll get there and I'll have time to have, to have it cleaned off so I'll be, present, I'll be presentable before the king. And so you, 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 you hoist up your robes and you quicken your pace to the city. But shortly after entering the city gates, which you think are safe and protected, a robber stops you and accosts you and demands all that you have. And you resist. And in the midst of the scuffle, your, your garment is not only torn, but you are flipped onto the ground and rolled around in the, in the mud, in the mire, in the filth and the grime of the city. And now you stand up and you look and you're even in a worse condition than you, you started out. And there's no time to do anything about your appearance. There's no money to purchase something new. What are you going to do? You cannot, you cannot refuse the king's summons to stand before him and so with vain hope you approach the throne room. And one by one, the people are called to stand before the king. And when it's your turn, the guards standing there glance at you and immediately swing their pikes in front of you and say, there is no way you're going to the throne room looking like that. You are a filthy mess. It's dishonoring to the king. It would be a disgrace to appear before him like that. And about that time, you notice the king's son coming and he hears the disturbance and wants to know what's going on. And you stand before him, ashamed of your appearance as you sought to go before his father dressed the way you were. And in a moment of fear and confusion, the son looks directly into your eyes and he commands the two guards to strip off those outer garments that are filthy and disgusting and throw them away. And you fear that judgment has come upon you for your presumption to appear before the king in such a sorry state. But then you look again into the, into the son's eyes and you see compassion there. And you see him begin to take off the pure, white, radiant robe that he himself wears. And he hands it to you. And you just stare at it. And you don't know, your mind is still unable to comprehend what he is doing. And he says, put it on. And he begins to help you. With your filthy garments now gone. To stand in his perfect, gleaming robe. So that you may go and stand before his father faultless. That's what God does for us in Christ. He cleanses our sin and he gives us the righteousness that we need. And that's just not some made up story. The prophet Zechariah is given a vision in chapter 3 of his book. And this is what he says. Then the Lord showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. Understand that in the Old Testament... 
There are angels of the Lord, and then there is the angel of the Lord. And when we read the angel of the Lord, it is none other than God the Son before he took on flesh. It is the second person of the Trinity, God himself there. So the prophet says, The Lord showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. Luther said, How can a sinner achieve holiness enough to be made right before God? And the answer is he can't. He can't. But God requires it. And the glory of justification is this. What God requires, He has provided in Christ. God says, stand faultless before my throne. And we, we cringe in fear and say, God, I, I can't. I am a sinner. And even at my best, I still sin. And He says, then trust in my Son. Don't trust in what you can do. Trust that He died to take away the penalty of your sin. And he was raised back to life for your justification. That means he was raised back to life, righteous and pure, so that God might credit his righteousness to you. If you are here today as a believer, even as one who's been saved for a long time, don't boast in your righteousness. Don't boast in all the progression that has taken place, all the transformation that has taken place in your life since you first professed Christ. But understand, it has all been a work of God's grace. And in humility, stand back and worship in awe at what the Savior has done for you. And if you are here this morning and you find yourself knowing that you are trusting in what you do to be made right with God, perhaps even religious activity, perhaps you're trusting in your parents' religiosity, don't. Don't. Trust in Christ alone. Trust in Him to be your Savior and Lord. And God promises that you will have your sins forgiven and the righteousness of His Son credited to you so that you could be made right with Him. And then what does Paul say later in Romans 8? What did we just sing about? When Satan tempts us to despair and points out, reminds us of the guilt within, what do we do? What do we do? We understand that we are not made right with God because of what we have done. And so we can say with Paul in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. We can say, no matter how bad the accusations are, no matter how much guilt is dredged up in our life, we can say, that has been paid for by the cross of Christ. And I don't stand before my Heavenly Father because of what I have done, but because of what Jesus has done for me. Therefore, I can take rest in my soul before God. Let's pray. Father, we are so unimaginably thankful for the cross. And Father, we pray that we would not take it lightly. 
Father, we pray that we would cherish it. That, Father, it would be the means by which we would take comfort and assurance before you in living our lives before you. Father, today I pray that as the gospel has been unfolded throughout this message, that if there are those that are here that have not ever accepted Christ as Savior, that you would speak into their hearts with the power of your Spirit and call them to faith in yourself. We pray all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.